we were uh, in different parts. Uh, um, I think we were talking about the best gifts, and the best gift that was given this year was a stuffed bear that my sister gave to my two-year-old grandson. This was not a bear. This was an adult-sized Khalil Mack fully developed bear. And uh, the best part of it was looking at the father's face when we delivered the bear. He didn't realize that he was going to need another room in the house in order. I had to drive this thing up to Holland where we met them. And I had him sitting up in the back seat of the car. And I never knew, I never really noticed this until I, w I would pull up to lights and I would look over and they were looking at me kind of peculiar. And the bear was sitting up like an adult in the back of my car with his head tilted out the window a little. <laughs> he, had, he had everything but a ball cap on. I think people were waiting for me to talk to him. And I did. I had to. I was driving alone. Uh, I hope you've had a less eventful uh, break than the one that we that than the one that we've had. We've been invaded by this two-year-old for the last uh, nine or ten days here. Boy, that's why you have them when you're young. Oh my goodness gracious! I want to be, uh, just begin today talking about um, uh, the meaning of the gospel. Let me give you the backstory to this. Uh, last May of 2019, I did an offsite retreat with our church board. Partway through that retreat, I uh, told them that the three things I was trying to uh, install in every member's life in College Church was a knowledge of the Word, a belief in the gospel, and a love for the church. I felt if we could give people an understanding of the Word, an appreciation for the gospel and a love for the local church. It's the best thing we could possibly do for them. And then they could take that into their different contexts. Partway through that conversation, the board stopped, interrupted me and said, uh, Steve, what do you mean by the gospel? I said, this is not the gospel that I grew up hearing about in church. It's it feels like a different gospel to me. It, the one I grew up hearing about was a set of theological claims that were made by an evangelist to a sinner trying to get them saved and brought into the church. But the gospel in the Old Testament is a set of convictions practiced by a prophet not to unbelievers, but to believers, trying to recruit them into a movement that God has already started. They said, you need to tell us what the gospel is and how to share it, if sharing is even the right word. Well, I've never had a board before tell me what I should preach. I don't uh, fully believe in it, but there it was. They put the challenge before me that night. And when I went to bed, 
at the retreat, I knew that they were onto something. They had put their finger on something that has been bothering me for a long time, and I've not been able to find words for it. It seems to me that the religious landscape in our country is changing more rapidly in the last 20, 30 years than it has changed in the previous maybe 100. And this has created what some call a gospel gap, which is the space between the incremental growth of the church and the accelerated growth of the public. In other words, the culture is getting larger, more diverse, more complex, and more secular faster than the church can adapt to reach it. And so the gap between the church and the culture is getting wider and wider the longer we watch. So all of the methods that we have used to share the gospel now seem out of date. No, it's worse than that. They seem intrusive at best, annoying at worst. 80% of the people driving by this church this morning say that they consider evangelism to be an intrusive, if not rude, behavior. Almost 50% of the millennials in this room, not driving by, church-going millennials believe the same thing. It is offensive and intrusive to start evangelizing someone, and yet they feel it's important to share Christ. So it feels like our culture is more hungry for hearing the gospel and yet more resistant at the same time. People are ready to have conversations about faith, but they no longer confine those conversations to the Christian tradition. They want to have them about every faith, and they want to get there on their own. They don't want to be led by somebody that has a prescribed plan. And yet, many of us, including myself, came up in churches that were trained to do exactly that, take conversations, and if we can, steer them onto religious themes so we can bring this person down a path, a road, a set of laws or steps toward receiving Christ. All of that's changing. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying the culture is changing and it's becoming less and less effective. It's quiet in here. You thinking? Are you sleeping? The culture, including those in the church, lack the structures and the language for speaking of God in general. 
We've lost touch with the big story. So we can't make sense of all our little stories underneath it. And what is needed is not in innovation in methods. We don't need new methods and we don't need new churches and new practices as much as we need new language for speaking about the gospel. It's not connecting. A few moments ago, we sang, when I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me and he lives for me. That makes perfect sense to everyone in this room. But you understand, when you leave this room, it doesn't connect. People can't see how the death and resurrection rescues us from slavery if we even admit it. So there's a disconnect. We need better ways. So what I want to do the next few weeks is talk about what the gospel is and what it means to believe it and how we might share it if sharing is even the word, and what might be the result if we did. Whenever I come upon problems like this, I try to find a place in the Bible that somehow captures uh, the dilemma that we're in. And so last fall, I told you a story about a guy in Mark chapter 9 whose father brought the boy to Jesus because the Bible says he had been robbed of his speech. He couldn't talk. But when he met Jesus, we discovered he couldn't talk because he couldn't hear. And so what we need, we said last fall, was an emphasis upon hearing first what God is saying and then what our culture is saying so that we can get back our voice. So we've spent a few months talking about listening. I want to spend the next few talking about talking. When I was a child, I was put on a bus to go see my dad in another city. It was about a two-hour bus ride, and I happened to sit next to a lady, an older lady. Of course, when you're about 12 years old, everybody's old. And partway through this bus conversation, she started telling me stories about her life, and I didn't even ask. I just remember she had a boatload of problems. I remember that her family was coming apart. I remember uh, uh, that she was cycling in and out of jobs. I remember her brother blew up his leg because he was playing with with, uh, explosives. I'm still trying to figure that out. I remember that she was feeling lonely in a big city. And after about two hours, we landed in Pontiac, Michigan. We disembarked. My dad was there, picked me up, got in the car. And as we were driving, he said, well, how was the trip? I said, weird. (laughs) Sat next to this lady who had all kinds of stuff. He said, like, what stuff? And I told her, him the stuff that she was telling me. Then there was a pause. And then my dad, just in a real quiet way, he said, 
Did you tell her about Jesus? I'm like, dude, I'm 12. That's your job. He said, uh, did you tell her that you were a Christian? You probably didn't pray for her. Did you tell her you would pray for her? I just remember he went, huh, all right, let's go. And I couldn't miss the feeling that I had just blown a huge opportunity to evangelize. And I lived with that for a long time. But in my defense, <laughs> how was I going to connect a person's broken marriage, cycled jobs, wounded brother, and estrangement in a large city with the story that Jesus died and came back to life for the sins of the world. I could not for the life of me connect those two things. I didn't even know how to listen to the stories in the language of gospel. So of course I didn't share Jesus. In that moment, Jesus didn't seem like the answer. This is our problem today, isn't it? Both in the church and out of it. We can no longer frame our problems in religious language. Not even Christians. And so religious solutions like gospel seem irrelevant. So we will gather in religious circles and speak language only we understand while the culture that we want to reach drifts further and further away. Enter the man in Mark chapter 7. The best part about this miracle in Mark 7 that you just heard was uh, for me that it, it happened in the Decapolis. The Decapolis was 10 Greek cities that were taken back over by Pompeii about 60 years before Jesus was born. And then he formed with these 10 cities an alliance with kind of a shared defense. And so the cities were full of Greeks and Roman soldiers. So it was the people from the Decapolis, likely Greeks, pause, these are not God-fearing people. These are people who don't believe in God. They believe in many gods. And they don't believe Jesus is the son of God. They believe he's a good man. He's a prophet. He has maybe divine power. And so the only thing they know is that maybe this friend of ours who is deaf and mute will have some favor if we can bring him to this other man, this prophet, this good teacher. And so they bring him to Jesus 
And they don't ask for him to save him. They don't even ask for him to heal them. They just ask for the teacher to bless him. Because he's deaf, he can't hear, and he's mute, only he's not silent. The word for mute here means that he is making noises, but the noises are unintelligible. You talk to someone who was deaf, they have a hard time articulating their language, that was his problem. He was able to talk, but what he was saying was confusing. It was cryptic. It was hidden, inarticulate. It was meaningless. They couldn't discern or decipher what he was saying, but he was still talking. And Jesus uh, committed two acts. First, he put his fingers in the man's ears, I guess like this. And then he spit on his fingers and he opened the man's mouth and he touched the man's tongue with his saliva. And when he did this, he looked to heaven and he said, Ephephah, which means be opened. And Immediately, the man's ears were opened and his tongue, wait for the language, was set free. His speech problem was not so much a deficiency, it was a disability. He could talk, but he wasn't making sense. And when Jesus touched his tongue, he started talking and it started making sense. They could understand him. And immediately Jesus looked at the man with his friends and he said, don't say a word about this. But the man, in an act of holy disobedience, he, he runs out and he starts talking about it. And the scripture says, the more Jesus said, don't tell anybody, the more he kept talking about it. So by the end, all of the people in this village were hearing this story. They weren't even there. And they heard this story and they were overwhelmed with amazement. And they said, my goodness. That man does everything well. This has been my prayer for the church. I'm praying that God will open our ears. So we can listen. Not because we have a pocket full of answers we can't wait to share, but because we genuinely care about people. 
So I'm praying that God will teach me how to listen. Not so I can rescue, but so I can enter into the dilemma with the other person and we'll discover what the gospel is for them together. And it might be the world that brings the church to Jesus. And praise that very thing. It might be the Greeks who bring the Christians back to Jesus and say, we can't do this, but this church is deaf and they cannot speak. And we don't have any hope unless the church learns to listen and they learn to speak. But you see, in church, you already think you do listen. And your words make perfect sense to everyone else in the building. Now, it might actually be the world that saves the church before the church saves the world. Because I admit we have Christians, lots of them, who neither hear nor speak. For them, worship is like a fourth chapel. They come, they watch the show, and do not grow. But there are others of us that cannot hear, but we keep talking. And when you speak and you haven't heard from God, the only thing you know to share are plans of salvation. This is why you need to drag somebody into a prescribed conversation so you can take control of the conversation and lead it toward a prescribed end. Somehow, I have to get this person to believe that they have a problem with sin. But see, not everybody believes they have a problem with sin. And so the conversation is broken before it already begins because we do not have other language. We do not know how to listen. And so we just talk. I mean, I did this. Lady came years ago. Lady came in to see me. First thing out of her mouth, will you dedicate my baby? I said, well, are you a Christian? She said, Christian? Oh, I wish I was. My life is so rotten. I just need God. You know what I did? <laughs> I did the only thing I knew to do. I went back into my memory and I reached for the four spiritual laws. I said, well, let me tell you what. Humans are sinful and separated from God. But it's a good thing because God has said, I got halfway through, she interrupted me. And she said, preacher, 
get to the point. I need God. Can you help me or not? I thought, I can preach. When you can't hear and you keep talking, that's what you do. And again, I'm not going to dismiss that. I'm not telling you to stop talking. Keep talking. But pray that God will open your ears. Because then the stuff that you say to people will be fresh and personal. We have another group of people in our church that can hear, but they won't talk. So they'll do random acts of kindness and hope that a person figures it out. Only they don't. Preach the gospel, they say, and if necessary, use words. Well, listen to me. It's necessary. <laughs> Use words, thoughtful words, sensitive words, but help people connect the difference in your life to the person Jesus Christ. Say something. They won't figure it out, but not until you listen. So I suspect what's needed is uh, like an evangelistic intelligence. Think of it, think of it like this. Um, in medicine, they have pharmacologists that go back in the laboratory and they mix up all sorts of drugs. And then they put them on the counter and the doctors take the drugs and they meet you in their office and you tell them your symptoms, and then they hand you a drug. That's sort of what we've done with evangelism. We've put thinking folks and theologians behind closed doors, not on streets, removed from the symptoms. And then we've kept practicing Christians on the streets and out of the classroom, removed from the thoughts. So we have part of the church mixing drugs and another part of the church pushing pills. Whatever the symptoms, Jesus is the answer. Jesus, it's just Jesus. What if there was a generation of people that knew enough about theology and they were close enough to the street so that when they heard the symptoms, this is my dream, they could go back into the laboratory and make their own drugs. Wait, that didn't sound right. <laughs> they could say something that was theologically substantive and so it would work. And it was a direct answer to that conversation, not that one. That's where we're going.
um, I think it all begins with um, your story. It begins with the time that you came to Jesus and he touched you and he changed you. Because we don't need preachers, we need witnesses. People that have actually had the miracle that they're talking about. Can I leave you with a couple of questions that I'd like you to think about over the next few days? And then when we start next Sunday, we'll start here. The first question is, why do you choose to be or remain a Christ follower? Why did you choose to be or why do you choose to remain today a follower of Christ? In one sentence. Second question. What is it about him that you most want for you? What do you want him to do for you that only he can do? Not a doctor, not a psychologist, not a friend, a miracle. What do you want him to do that only God can do? Jesus, burn these questions into our mind and in them help us to begin to find our own encounter 